coming up on this episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. There's a stewardship that occurs that is transmitted into the food product for which people who consume it then benefit because they are part of more than just the molecules of which the food is made up of. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Mark here. Optimizing your health and wellness is a lifelong journey, and we all know how important things like proper nutrition and exercise are to live better. But I want to talk with you about another foundational tool for optimizing wellness that often gets overlooked, infrared saunas. Infrared saunas are extremely effective at reducing the body's stress response and creating balance in the autonomic nervous system. They can improve circulation, help with weight loss, balance blood sugar, improve detoxification, each of which improves your brain function. When it comes to infrared saunas, my number one brand is Sunlighten. Whether you're craving relaxation or deep sleep or detoxification, Sunlight Infrared Saunas will help you achieve your health and wellness goals. From weight loss to muscle recovery and skin rejuvenation, their patented infrared technology will restore your body and your mind. Right now, you can save up to $600 on your purchase. Simply visit sunlighten.com forward slash Mark dash Hyman and mention my name, Dr. Hyman, to save. In a completely natural environment, your body's internal clock would normally be dialed in. But in the 21st century world we live in today, there are many things that can throw your rhythms off balance. Things like excessive screen time and environmental stressors can contribute to knocking your circadian rhythms out of whack. And this results in many of us dealing with sleep issues and not quite knowing where to turn. I've worked so hard to optimize my own sleep, and one of the most important tools in my sleep toolbox is Sleep Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. Sleep Breakthrough is a fully optimized, delicious sleep drink designed to help you fall asleep in minutes, experience deep, high-quality sleep, and wake up feeling refreshed and energized. And because it's melatonin-free, unlike most other over-the-counter sleep aids, your body won't downregulate melatonin production or become dependent on a pill or a gummy to get to sleep. Right now, Bioptimizers is offering my listeners 10% off Sleep Breakthrough. And if you buy two or more, you'll get a free bottle of Magnesium Breakthrough. This is a limited time offer, so go to sleepbreakthrough.com forward slash Hyman and use the code Hyman10. And now let's get back to this week's episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. Hi, this is Lauren, one of the producers of The Doctor's Pharmacy podcast. Today's episode was recorded live at the Integrative Healthcare Symposium, an evidence-based, multidisciplinary conference designed to educate, inspire, and connect integrative practitioners through clinically relevant sessions about alternative and complementary approaches to healthcare. Please excuse any background noise and enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Doctor's Pharmacy. I'm Dr. Mark Hyman, and that's Pharmacy with an F, a place for conversations that matter. And if you care about your immune system, which we all should, and if you care about aging well, then this is the podcast you should listen to because it's with the man who determined the course of my life, <laughs> truly, through his genius of uncovering the way our bodies were truly designed and mapped out a world of understanding about functional medicine that has been the foundation of my career, that has helped me personally through my health journey and know has helped many of you. And... Without him, I wouldn't be here. So, Jeff, uh, I'm so happy to have you here. For those of you listening, don't know who Dr. Bland is. Then don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's probably the biggest unsung hero of medicine and should have been awarded many Nobel Prizes. Uh, and hopefully he will be before it's all over. But he basically has been having his finger on the pulse of the emerging science uh, over the last, let's say, 60 maybe years? 
55. 55 years. And uh, has seen things that were way ahead of its time. He described the role of inflammation in health, talked about the microbiome before there was even a word for the microbiome. He helped us understand the importance of mitochondria and the importance of insulin resistance and things that were really not part of our medical training, but have turned out to be the most fundamental concepts in healthcare today. Uh, he also uh, recently, because he didn't really do enough in his life, founded a new company called Big Bold Health, which is on a mission to transform the way people think about one of nature's greatest innovations, the immune system. Uh, through Big Bold Health, he's advocating the power of something called immunorejuvenation to enhance immunity at a global level through the rediscovery of ancient food crops and superfoods, which you're going to hear about today. They're doing this through an incredible network of small farms they're building and suppliers throughout the country that are creating a model of regenerative agriculture and environmental stewardship and planetary health that uh, is not only creating goodness for our own health and immune system for basically the health of the planet. His career spans uh, 55 years. I don't know, maybe more. He's a nutritional biochemist. He was a student of Linus Pauling. He started his career as a university professor and has been probably the guy who's traveled around the world talking about functional medicine and teaching so many of us for so many decades uh, more than anybody else and has probably more frequent flyer miles than any human on the planet. <laughs> he... he uh, <laughs> he founded the Institute for Functional Medicine with his wife, Susan, in 1991. And also in 2012, he founded an incredible nonprofit called the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute. He's the author of Disease, Illusion, Conquering the Causes of Chronic Illness for a Healthier, Longer, Happier Life, and countless additional books and research papers. Welcome, Jeff. Mark, thank you. That was very kind. It's probably more news to you than anyone wanted, but thank you. That was really... <laughs> He's great. also very humble. Um, so uh, let me just start by talking about kind of why this topic is so important. Why food? Why the immune system? Why now? Um, and, you know, like all life on the planet, humans are basically a reflection of their environments and what they eat and consume. And when it comes to extending our health span, the number of healthy years we're on this planet, it's critical to pay attention to what we consume. And that means also paying attention to what our food consumes, what we're eating eats, essentially, what the plants eat in the soil and what our animals eat. And our diets have dramatically changed over the last hundred years. In America, our agricultural system has moved from heirloom, high nutrient dense plants to a subsidized production of highly commodified crops, modified corn, wheat, rice, and soy that are now the staples of our diet that account for probably 40 to 60% of our calories in the form of ultra-processed food. And that the calories are not really the issue as much as the quality of the food we're eating and the information in food, as Jeff has taught us, it's a direct reflection of the health and the quality of the conditions under which the food was grown. And if we don't have food grown in the right way, the nutrients don't end up in the food and then they don't end up in us. So I'm really excited to be here with you, Jeff, to discuss some of your really exciting new research on clinical trials that you've done on the impact of phytochemicals in the immune system, how that affects the immune system's aging, and how to use the nature's power of phytochemicals to enhance our 
health and longevity through what we eat. Um, we're also going to assess my new book, Young Forever, uh, which I have uh, documented many of the things that you're talking about and I've learned from you and the practices and principles I've used uh, as a doctor and have experienced as a patient over the last 30 years. I'm going to keep wanting to do what I'm doing for a long time uh, and what brings me joy. And it, basically now at 63 years old, I feel like I'm in better shape than I've ever been. I feel healthier than I was when I was 40. I'm chronologically 63, but biologically 43. And, uh, and what I've learned over the last few decades is pretty revolutionary in helping me get biologically younger while I grow chronologically older. <laughs> and I really want all of you to learn how to do that too. So Jeff, let's start by talking about how we're really for the first time pulling the veil back on what it means to age and what the mechanisms of aging are and how we need to kind of reframe what we thought about aging as we see it, which is pretty much a phenomena of disease and frailty and decline. And, and now we kind of have learned from nature that there are remarkable molecules that help us to address some of the phenomena that occur as we get older. And that, uh, you know, we've learned a lot. But the question I pose to you now is what, what really have we learned about human longevity from plant genetics? Well, thank you. Let me, if I can, do first a mea culpa. And I, I don't think I've ever told you this story, Mark. This is an honest up, so you've got to keep this secret among us. That in 1976, I was uh, involved with the start of Omega Institute with uh, Stefan Rickshoffen in Rhinebeck, New York. And uh, in my first course there, it was a week-long course on nutrition. There are a lot of very enthusiastic students in this course starting in the, on the Saturday morning. And I was very, I spoke really quickly back in those days, as contrasted to today where I speak much more slowly. But I was just rattling off stuff so fast, nervous anxiety, came to the first break, and this uh, attendee in the course came up to me and he said, so, um, you know, I signed up this course to hear about nutrition. And I, I said, uh, well, that's what I've been talking about this morning. And he goes, no, you haven't been talking about nutrition. You you've been talking about dead foods. I came here to learn about live foods. Well, in my pedagogical naivete, I had the audacity to say, well, I'm not sure there is any difference between live and dead foods. And therefore, I guess if that is how you're kind of interpreting what I'm saying, that probably this is not the course for you. <laughs> well, it turns out he was right and I was wrong. At 77 years of age, I've come to learn since 1976 that there is such a thing as live foods, that live foods carry extraordinary energy in them that you don't get from ultra-processed foods. They go way beyond calories. It's both the enzymatic activity of the plant itself in its non-denatured form, but it's also the psychological energy that comes along with that plant that's been grown by stewardship of a survivable planet. That we carry legacy up as a record of the intention that went into the production of that food. 
it took me a lot of years to kind of finally grok that and understand it because I came from a very materialistic kind of scientific background that molecules are molecules and action is action and mechanisms are mechanisms. But I've come to recognize now in this latter portion of my career, working with organic farmers in upstate New York that are part of our cooperative, that there's a stewardship that occurs that is transmitted into the food product for which people who consume it then benefit because they are part of more than just the molecules of which the food is made up of. And it's been part of my path of learning, I have to say, and if that individual were here in this audience today, I would, I would give him a big apology for my um, demeaning what was the principle that he was trying to get across. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't molecular processes going on within food that influence our bodies. Certainly that's become kind of my resident expertise, but we're in a constant learning mode, all, all of us. And so what I've learned is I've um, now celebrating uh, coming up next month, my 77th birthday, and I hope double sevens is a good number, um, is that there is A, always new things to learn, but B, we're part of the process. We each have our own zone of, of influence, some people are, have larger zones of influence than others, but every person has a zone of influence. And we all speak to the world on our behavior, what our intention is and how we want to present ourselves and our beliefs to the world. And in a time where we are watching demographic transitions in the development countries of the world, people are getting older and people are then getting the legacy of whatever they were thinking and acting over the course of their younger years. The outcome of this uncontrolled study called aging isn't that glamorous. We know this with the psychological problems, the metabolic problems, uh, the behavioral problems, uh, the is issues of dementia that we're seeing in an aging population. Not that we could completely eradicate those because age does happen, the clock does turn, it is irreversible, called time. But the way that time plays out chronologically on our body is highly variable. And that concept of healthy aging, which starts probably preconceptionally, now is what we're learning, that the preparation for the sperm meeting the egg, that biological magic event that creates the pluripotentiality of life, that gives rise to all outcome that we would never anticipated, the magic of a human being, that aging process is already set in motion partially in the preparation of that sperm to meet that egg. And it then follows all the way through fetal development, into infancy, and throughout the remainder of our life. And that's that epigenetic process that we're now learning much about. That in school, I was told that epigenetic stops the moment that fetal development stops. And then we're kind of fixed in stone from then on, whatever the genes are, that's what you're gonna get. If you got the bad luck of the draw, what was you? If you happen to get a good hand dealt to you, Good, good luck. But now we're recognizing actually this epigenetic remodeling occurs throughout all of our life on what we bathe over our genes in terms of experience. Our thoughts, our attitudes, our beliefs, how we eat, how we act, who we interact with, and that directly relates to our biological aging. Your years and birthdays stay the same, but the way your body performs at those age is variable. So that's my learning of 77 years. That's pretty good, Jeff. I, I want to come back to the, the, the insight, which is that, you know, the, the food that we eat is information. And 
and uh, and particularly the phytochemicals in food are massive bioregulators. Uh, the question is, you know, you know, are these phytochemicals more than just antioxidants or anti-inflammatories? And what role does their genetics have in our health? And what's going on with this sort of world of phytochemistry that that we didn't really understand before, that we're now beginning to understand and how it regulates our biological health and our biological age. And I, and I, I think I'm just going to sort of uh, highlight what you said to me earlier before we started when we're chit-chatting, that in clinical trials that you've just completed, you saw a five to seven year reversal of biological age in three months of using a phytochemical cocktail that we're going to talk about soon from an ancient plant. So that just seems really remarkable to me. When everything else is the same, you can have that much of an impact. Yeah, so let, let's talk just a second about this phytochemicals. You know, that's um, PHY, like plant-derived plant chemicals. Yeah, why should we care? <laughs> so I think back, and I've got enough years of experience now where there are many moments where I was in debates or discussion in different meetings, often with people that were not of the same mindset as I. They would always put me on the program as the alien fugitive just to get a different opinion. So I was your you know, social determinant for alternative opinions often in these meetings. And um, the construct was that nutrition was calories. And within calories, you had the three principal calorie con contributors, protein, carbohydrate, and fat. And then you had some accessory factors that were helpful to support metabolism to use those calories that we call vitamins and minerals. And these were the kind of fabulous 35 essential nutrients. That was nutrition. But then when you start asking questions, if you analyze the chemical composition of food, is that all that you'll find in food? Then people would say, well, no, that other stuff is kind of flotsam and jetsam. We can take it out of there and we can throw it away, maybe put it in pet food to make spry pets, but you know, it's not important for humans. And of those other things that we take out, particularly in the processing of plants, they fall in this family called phytochemicals or phytonutrients. And if you went to a traditional nutrition textbook that generations of nutrition experts were trained in and asked how many pages in their textbooks that they studied from, that they had to take tests from to get certified, were discussing phytochemicals, it would be like a few pages because they were considered non-essential because you Secondary didn't have- compounds. Yeah, you, you, they were just kind of there, right? Now, the most exciting singular geek geekism that I have learned over the last uh, 10 years is that these compounds, this literally thousands and thousands of different plant-derived secondary metabolites that the genes of plants make for us, or for them actually, and then we eat them, um, are purposeful. They weren't just because the plant didn't have anything better to do with its time that it decided, I'm going to make glucosinolates. Today sounds like a glucosinolate day. Then tomorrow I'm going to make epicalocatechin gallate because I like green tea. No, the plant does those because it gave a selective advantage to the plant based upon their immune systems. And these compounds that are found in plants, these secondary metabolites, are signal transductions agents that regulate the expression of genes at the executive center of function. And you might ask the question, what's most important, the genes you have or the way they're expressed? 
Well, that's a difficult question to answer because they're both pretty important. But if you don't express your genes in the right way, you're a mess. I mean, remember that every cell in your body contains your same book of life of 23 pairs of chromosomes that has a message for every other cell type of which there are hundreds of different cell types in the body. So how does that happen? How does a liver cell stay a liver cell when it has a message for the brain cell and the skin cell and vice versa? It does so by regulatory elements, transcription factors and regulatory elements that epigenetically mark that are directly tied to your phytochemicals in your diet as to how they actually function. They're signal transduction agents, they're regulators. They're not just antioxidants or anti-inflammatories, that's a simple-minded thought that goes away 10 years ago. Now we have recognized that they actually have purposeful action at specific cell types and specific cell activities to regulate their function so that that cell will do something in response to a signal. And that signal could be a stress. It could be exposure to a xenobiotic chemical, a foreign chemical. So if you have a, uh, a diet that's rich in glucosinolates like indole-3-carbonyl and sulforaphane and so forth, then your liver cells pick up the message. And what does it do? It activates and upregulates the gene expression of various cytochromes and various secondary enzymes involved with phase two conjugation. So your liver is more capable of getting rid of foreign chemicals. It plays an intimate role so, in protecting the body against agents that might create dysfunction. So the construct that we all learned in school about phytochemicals, if you ever studied it at all, is a relic. It's wrong. So, now that's the beauty of science, right? We like to think that the human body of knowledge is advancing to answer questions that previously we just glossed over and say, well, that wasn't important. We'll just take them out of food and make white. White is close to godliness. So we'll make all white foods that have no flavor and no color so we can put sugar and salt and fat in them and make them palatable and high profit for the processed food industry because we don't need all those other things. No one's ever proven they're useful. Now we say, no, that is where the business is for anti-aging yeah. is in those products. Well, I mean, the, the thing that we really know is that these molecules interact with our receptors, our cells, our hormones, our brain chemistry, our microbiome, our immune system in so many different ways. But there's a conversation going on that these compounds are the plant's defense mechanisms. They're the plant's deterrence to pests. They're the plant's immune system to fight off bad things. That if we consume them, they're, they're little poisons that we're putting in our body that could potentially harm us. And, and I think it's an interesting conversation, particularly in the carnivore field, where there's a lot of anti-nutrients in plants, and plants are bad for us. There's phytates, and there's oxalates, and there's, um, you know, all sorts of things that we may not want to be consuming. And in a way, I, I think it misses the fundamental point of what's going on, that these plants are hormetic agents, right? Hormesis is essentially the idea of something that doesn't kill you, but makes you stronger, like exercise or fasting. And that, yes, these are compounds that are a little bit irritating to the body, but that irritation, just like exercise or fasting or hot or cold therapy, will actually trigger a response to create a benefit. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Mark here. Your home's indoor air could be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air. Toxic particles exist in cleaning products, house paint, stoves, air fresheners, and even furniture. 
In addition, there are other harmful contaminants floating inside your home environment, such as bacteria, viruses, allergens, mold, dust, pet dander, and hair. These particles can contribute to cardiovascular disease, lung disease, and even neurodegenerative diseases. Your home should be a safe haven, not a source of toxic air pollution. And that's why I use Air Doctor air purifiers. Air Doctor by Ideal Living is the first affordable air purifier that not only removes virtually 100% of particles at 0.003 microns, but also the vast majority of volatile organic chemicals and gases. It features an ultra HEPA filter that captures contaminants 100 times smaller than the HEPA standard, and its perfectly sealed system ensures you're breathing nothing but pure filtered air. I've teamed up with the makers of Air Doctor to give my listeners the best deal yet on this amazing filtration system. Right now, if you go to drhyman.com forward slash filter, you can get the Air Doctor purifiers for $329. That's $280 off the normal price. You know, so much about well-being centers on daily habits. If we cultivate poor habits, we can end up with poor health and risk suffering a laundry list of chronic conditions like autoimmune disease, metabolic conditions, and leaky gut. But when we cultivate good health habits, we can reverse and even eliminate many of the health problems so rampant in our world today. One of the easiest health-inducing habits you can form is to use Athletic Greens. Their AG1 powder offers comprehensive nutrition in one simple scoop. All you have to do is mix one scoop of AG1 with 8 ounces of cold water and drink it once a day. I take AG1 every day and replenish my nutrients and optimize my health, and I consistently feel better and have more energy throughout the day. And right now, Athletic Greens is giving away 10 free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash hymen. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash hymen. And now, let's get back to this week's episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. So when I heard you talk about the broccoli compounds, the glucosinolates, they basically are a signal to upregulate your body's own enzymes for detoxification. Is that right? I think you hit something, Mark, that's extraordinarily important. This concept of hormesis. We have to differentiate, I think, the mechanism of treating a disease with a bioactive new to nature molecule called a drug from eating foods that have bioactivity ingredients in them. Foods have undergone the largest scientific study in the history of any living species called natural selection. Think about it. If you want to talk about a study that has a long history, plants have smoothed their composition over millions of years. That's the clinical trial. They have survived in their environments as a consequence of that process of natural selection to hormetically contain substances that allow them to have an immune system to defend against some of the most hostile environments. How do you like to be a corn plant sitting out in Iowa and have to be out there every day with your arms stretched to the sky with no umbrellas? I mean, that's like instant sunburn, right? Just to think about that. So how do plants protect themselves? They develop these xanthophils and carotenoids that are sun SPF compounds, right? That prevent them from oxidative injury from ultraviolet light. And so they have these substances that are the right level in those plants to provide the optimal protection against the environment which they have been living, in the case of wild plants, for hundreds of thousands or millions of years. That's why when I talked to Marianne Lila, uh, who was originally at the University of Illinois, and she's now at the Canopolis uh, Center at the University of Carolina, uh, South Carolina, she's been studying indigenous plants in hostile environments for 30 years. That's been her research. She's published hundreds of papers. 
we had her as, her as a presenter at our meeting last fall at our PLMI meeting. And she was talking about the fact that when you get stressed plants that have had to survive in these hostile environments, bad soil, bad weather, bad sun, frost, heat, all these things, bugs, um, that they have had to develop by natural evolution hormetic compounds that are their immune system to help defend us. And it turns out, it turns out that when we eat those plants that contain those hormetic substances that are defensive immune active substances in those plants, that it transfers that immune principles to humans. This is now an extraordinary chapter in our web of life. You know, wait, wait, wait. Did you just say that if we eat plants that have had to build their immune system up because of tough conditions, that those compounds in those plants strengthen our immune system? 100% correct. 100% correct. And in fact, this is what got me into Himalayan tartary buckwheat. I, it was just like the weirdest thing. If someone would say, Jeff, you're going to be the advocate of bringing Himalayan tartary buckwheat, this 4,000-year-old ancient food, back to the United States, I would say, you got to be kidding me. You know, this is the twilight years of my career. I'm not going to be in organic farming. But I couldn't resist. Once I learned about this crop, this 4,000-year-old domesticated crop, as it relates to its immune potentiating activity, that is some 50 times, 50 times, not percent, Five higher zero. in immune potentiating nutrients in common buckwheat. 50 times higher than common buckwheat. It's infinitely larger than wheat or other grasses, other grains. It's infinitely larger. And why does it have that extraordinary power? Because it grew on the slopes of the Himalayas in extraordinarily bad soils, high in aluminum. It has an aluminum detoxifying gene. It's frost resistant. It's drought resistant. It's bug resistant. Bugs don't even like it because it's got so many phytochemicals and it doesn't require irrigation. You just throw it on the ground, put it there with good stewardship of organic soil, and boom, up you get a crop of Himalayan tartary buckwheat. And it's been lost in America for 200 years because it has a taste right? Because when you put secondary phytochemicals in plants, they're not like white flour and sugar. They have a taste. So now we have a food lab to make recipes and make it more palatable and to reintroduce it. I think it, it tastes good. <laughs> so there we go. And this is my expert. This is the Dr. Mark Hyman, Himalayan Tartary pancake expert. <laughs> yes, I do have a pancake, pancake recipe that's very good in the vegan diet. Chai pancakes that I made for Jeff. <laughs> many times. So, uh, let's let's dig in a little more. The 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 phenomena of aging, and, and as we've learned from you over the years, is really an inflammatory process. Yeah. So let's kind of start with what causes the immune system to become dysfunctional as we age. What causes the acceleration of inflammation as we age, and and how does that connect to the aging of our whole body? And then we'll kind of loop back to how to use plants to affect that and what you found in your research. Yeah. So you said this beautifully in your book. You know, Mark, as you know, if you've read his books, and I'm sure everybody here has read one or more of his books, is a brilliant narrator. He tells a story better than anyone. I, I've, the first time I, I read anything he wrote, I said, this man's on the path because he can make very complicated topics very engaging and understandable. Because I have logaria. Which is no kind of diary of you, words. You, you, you do you do not need to diminish your genius. You're very very good at this. Um, so one of the things that I've learned that Mark picked up beautifully and he's done elegantly in in uh, Young Forever 
is a discussion about how our body responds to the experience of life and how that's associated with biological aging. So, you know, my, my father used to say to me, you know, Jeff, life is what happens in between your plans. So we've got this whole thing about a planned life. You know, I remember my daughter-in-law when she had her pregnancy plan with her first child. And I said, no woman can live by this plan. Oh, yes, Jeff, I am very disciplined. I'm living by this plan. Then, of course, stuff happened during her pregnancy. She said, oh, my plan went, on, went to hell. I'm not able to do my plan. Uh, well, that's life, right? Stuff comes up. It happens. And we have to be resilient. So what is resilience? Resilience in our body is manifest through principally three different cell types, three different tissues that are constantly sampling the outside world, 24-7, 365. They're the only parts of our body that are constantly sampling the outside world. And what are they? They are our nervous system. There are mucosal tissues in our respiratory tract and our gastrointestinal tract. And there are our immune system. And they're all cross-talking all the time, one to the other. And so when we start talking then about what happens with the experience of life what, uh, to, as it relates to aging, is that this system, this information system, picks up bad news because everybody's life has trauma along the road, right? Now the question is, how do you deal with the trauma? Does it stick and stay there irreversibly? And if it does, you just accumulate road tar over life, which then depreciates the function of those cells that are taking the message from this reporter system, this communication system. Some people call this immune scars. We've just had a big episode of immune scars called SARS-CoV-2, haven't we? And there are now people, well, not some people, probably the majority of people are carrying some legacy of what that virus left on their immune system. These are epigenetic marks of an immune system that's altered from that experience. Now, is that a one-way street? And that's where Mark's book, I think, is so beautiful because it describes that, no, nothing in life is a one-way street. Even loss of neuronal reserve, we're now finding there is neuronal plasticity and neurons can be regenerated. Maybe not as quickly as skin cells, but, but they can be regenerated. So there is this other street that goes back the other direction. If there is damage, there is repair. So that's what I call rejuvenation. And, and our body is capable of rejuvenating. And fortunately, what we're starting to learn is that these marks that we carry that are associated then with the principles of aging or the hallmarks of aging that Mark has summarized so beautifully, these are kind of scientific geekisms, these hallmarks of aging, but you've made them accessible in your book they can be modulated by a reversible set of principles that are, is in our physiology if we give it the right thing to work from. If we don't give it the right thing to work from, it doesn't have the ability to power up that rejuvenation system and we just take the luck of the draw and we get worse as we grow older. By the way, when I say worse, it's not just physiologically or metabolically worse. It can be behaviorally worse. It can be feeling like we're not loved, we're not appreciated, we have no attribution. It's socially deprived. It's a form of, of um, deficiency. It's not a vitamin deficiency. It's a social support deficiency. Those leave marks. Vitamin L deficiency. Yes, vitamin L deficiency. Exactly right. Love. So all of these things work together to create who we are and how we, how we see our aging process manifest in our body. So Jeff, what, what's, no, take us down into the rabbit hole, a little bit of the science of what's happening to our immune system as we get older that 
causes it to generate more of this chronic sterile inflammation that is at the root of what we call inflammaging. And then, and then I want to kind of dive deep into how do we combat that and how do we change that, reverse that process? Yeah. So I'm just reviewing now what Mark has already said in his book. So I'm kind of the uh, just speaking book for his book. But in, in his book, he talks about these, these cell types that are, that are associated with biological aging that are called SASP cells. That stands for senescent associated secretory phenotypes. Along when, what does that mean in English? What it means is that these they're zombie, cells- They're called zombie cells in English. Yeah. They, they, they don't die and they run around spewing out inflammation, right? Yeah, exactly. So the genes of these cells are the same, but they're communicating a different message because they've been modulated by epigenetic experiences to be shifted into an alarm state. And that alarm state, the body's inflammatory pathways coming from a damaged immune system are there for a purpose, right? To recycle dead tissue, to help defend us against foreign invaders. Inflammation is not like a bad thing. It's a good process. It's when it's uncontrolled simmering like a burning, like a boiling pot on the stove all the time. That's associated with the development of these senescent associated secretory phenotype type cells. Zombie cells. Zombie cells. (laughs) So the question is, once you got a zombie cell, does it a zombie that's going to live in your body forever? And the answer is no. We now know that there are processes in the body for which Nobel Prizes have been won for the discovery only recently, like the process you talk about, autophagy or mitophagy, that are processes that activate the the rejuvenation of cells to give room for new naive cells to come in and replace them. Remember that in our body, our bone marrow is producing on the order of several million new white blood cells every few minutes. So we're constantly remodeling ourselves. So the question is, those white blood cells that are coming out into our body, are they as good as the ones that were there before? Are they worse or are they better? And rejuvenation is making them better, not making them worse. That's the process that we're really uh, speaking to when we talk about young forever. It doesn't mean that you've completely eradicated aging because the the clock still ticks, but it's removing these accelerants of the process of chronic inflammation that's associated with fibrosis, insulin resistance, cellular proliferation, um, all the things that we associate with the physiology of aging. And by the way, it's very interesting when the, the investigators, um, uh, and again, Mark talks about this in the book, investigators that are measuring these age clocks, um, like Stephen Horvath, who is at UCLA, is one of the world's experts in this area. They're able to actually take photographs of people, and they're able to match the photographs based upon the physiognomy of whether they look old for their age with their biological age clock of their immune system. Ah. Right. They're able to show that, yes, there is that. And so you say, hold it. Does that mean the inside of my body, if I could take a picture of the inside organs, they'd look not so good, too? Yeah, that's that's what it's saying, that you're altering the physiognomy, the architecture of your body and its function as a consequence of these processes. So, Jeff, we, we know that these cells accumulate as we get older, these zombie cells and other things that happen to our immune system, which is. Uh, a decrease in our ability to fight infection, our ability to fight cancer. And so we have sort of at the same time, we have this sort of increasing inflammation on the one end, we have a decreased ability to respond to threats on the other hand. And 
you have this concept that you coined called immunorejuvenation, which I find fascinating. And, and the mechanisms by which it occurs are still a little opaque to me. Um, and in the work you've been doing lately around studying the particular unique phytochemicals in Himalayan tartary buckwheat, things that are found nowhere else at, at, that we know of yet in any other plant, have this ability to rejuvenate our immune system. And you, you really have just completed a very important study, which I find shocking, which is that using the compounds from this ancient plant that somehow rejuvenate our immune systems, we can turn back the biological age clock by five to seven years. So take us through exactly what is happening at a cellular level from these compounds. What are the compounds? What do they do? How do they actually change your biological immune clock and make us younger? Yeah, so thank you. So I want to give attribution to uh, my colleague who is sitting right here in the front row, Dr. Austin Perlmutter. He is a person that's overseeing this clinical study that we're very excited about in our little company. Um, we thought it was a pretty ambitious trial for a small group, but uh, thanks to his acumen and the uh, associate help that he had with some very diligent um, co-investigators, we were able to take 50 individuals, apparently healthy, take their blood initially, um, and to evaluate using a gene chip produced by Illumina that has a little over 900,000 what are called CPG sites that are epigenetic marker sites on the genome. So this chip is able to measure 900 plus thousand of these sites, and they look for the methylation patterns of the genes, right? That's one of the principal process of epigenomics is methylation of the genome. So we're able to look at the methylation patterns of individuals at baseline. Then we were able to put them on the Himalayan tartary buckwheat phytochemicals over the course of 90 days. Uh, at a level that would be considered equivalent to eating something like 100 grams of Himalayan tartary buckwheat flour equivalent a day, so in that range. How many pancakes will. is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other story I can tell you about. I just got through eating uh, a little over 400 pancakes. Yeah, we're going to get to that that's story. I like story. that story. Yeah. But, uh... but anyway, going back to the clinical trial, um, the outcome then was to then take the blood of the individuals after the four months, and it was ad-libbed, so they were on the same diet. This was an end of one study, control you know, against themselves, their change over the course of three months, and then reanalyzing their methylation patterns or their epigenome of their white blood cells um, over the course of the three months. And in using age clock algorithms from these accepted methods, uh, we're able to deconvolute that data. This is a huge amount of data. It's well over a terabyte of data. So there's a lot of machine learning that has mm -hmm. to go on and how to analyze the data. But we were able to ultimately demonstrate that there is a functional change in the pattern of white blood cells in the body, normalizing function. And those individuals who started off with a, an immune age, it was higher than their chronological age. After three months, there was a trend, a significant trend actually, to bring it back into a lower immune age over the course of three months. So we feel this is the first study ever under this controlled, I, I wanna emphasize it's a pilot study. It's only 50 people, it was only three months. It was not placebo controlled, but I think it's the start of a whole new generation of how we interrogate this from a scientific perspective to demonstrate 
that we have the tools to actually show how you can reverse aging in the immune system with nutritional intervention. And that these compounds that we're using, the quercetin, luteolin, rutin, uh, has, I mean, there, there's over 50 different phytochemicals in tartary buckwheat. And the plant didn't make them just because it had nothing better to do. It made this specific composition for the immune defense of the plant. Well, it's important you just said that because, you know, a, a lot of uh, aging research and research in general is reductionist. And in, in aging circles and longevity research, they're looking at quercetin as a bioactive molecule that can help regulate immunity and reverse biological age. And they did a study using that plus a chemo agent, dastinib, and they found a reversal of about a year in biological age. But what you're talking about is a five to seven year reversal using a complex set of compounds that are in a whole food. So when you try to sort of extract a ingredient, you might not know what you're leaving behind. And it turns out what you're leaving behind, some of it we know, right? Some of the compounds in HT, Himalayan tartary buckwheat we know, some of them we might not know yet, right? And, Absolutely. And, and, and so that is really fascinating to me that there's all these uh, flavonoids and other compounds called tuhoba, which are acting in a way to regular epigenome independent of our lifestyle, which is kind of fascinating to me. And when you compound that with lifestyle changes and other strategies and a more sort of 360 view of how do we approach healthy aging, it becomes a really powerful intervention. Well, thank you, Mark. I think that's the real secret sauce you just said. I, I would not say that any one thing is the way mm -hmm. we reverse aging. I think it's a compilation of different things, better sleep, hygiene, regular activity, uh, good thoughts and attitudes, being loved, being respected. Um, you know, the, the concept of a, of a good diet, we say some kind of a like modified Mediterranean, low glycemic load, gluten-free, low allergy load type of dietary approach. All these things work together. But I think that the construct <clears throat> that there are plants that have had to grow up over millennia of their history to form genes that are really capable of being resilient against hostile conditions, that is an interesting construct. It, it, it raised my question such that I had a conversation. You know how life is very uh, fortuitous at times and serendipitous? As I get older, I think that there's no such thing as serendipity. I think we work ourselves into situations where these coincidences happens, where you run into somebody and say, oh, that was such a coincidence. No, it probably you were traveling in a certain circle of things that were likely to meet that person again. So that happened to me with regard to this Tartary Buckwheat story. So I am go to China. Uh, I have this magnificent visit. I'm up in Harbin, China, the northernmost city up by North Korea and Russia. And I, my host there is very kind. He says, Jeff, do you want to go back to Shanghai on the bullet train? That's what it says, 2,200 miles across all of China, down the middle of China in the bullet train, going at 250 miles an hour silently and vibration-free on this electric train. It's fantastic. And China's just going by me like a diorama. So I, I turned to him and I said, about halfway across, I, uh, I said to him, so have you ever heard of um, Himalayan Tartary buckwheat? And it was like the train stopped and we were frozen in motion. And he looked at me and said, oh, my word, you've got to be kidding me. I said, no, I, why, why do you say that? And he said, because we have been studying tartary buckwheat. We've been very interested. We can't find anybody in America that's interested. <laughs> Are you interested in working with us? So then I get back to the United States and I asked my colleague, Trish Yuri, uh, who has worked with me for over 25 years. I said, uh, Trish, when I left to go on this trip, you were going to look in to see if anyone was growing tartary buckwheat in the United States. And she said, I can only find one person 
He's a former Cornell University ag researcher um, that has retired, and he and his wife, who is a nurse, have a hobby farm in, uh, in upstate, upstate New, York. New York. Yeah, and he got these seeds from the USDA that he didn't know what they were. They just had a number on them, and he grew them. He loved them, and now he is he's found out that they're tartary buckwheat seeds, and he has 10 acres, and he's the only person I can find in the country that's growing it. So then I call Mr. Beer up and I said, "Are you? can we come out and visit you on your farm in Angelica, New York? And so we come out there and we spend a couple of days hanging out in the farm, getting our hands in the soil. Then I come home and I get a call from a good colleague, friend of mine, uh, Najee Amirad um, at uh, Vanderbilt University. And he says, Jeff, you've been asking about this study that just appeared in the Journal of Clinical Investigation from Vanderbilt. My colleagues who are studying this very unique new substance called 2-hydroxylbenzylamine, 2-HOBA. And the study that you were very interested in was lowering blood pressure with 2-HOBA based on its immune effects and the relationship of immune cells to the vascular endothelium, relaxing the endothelium and lowering blood pressure. And I said, yeah, I'm really interested in that because when I read the paper, in the fine print, it said that there's only one source in nature of that, which is Himalayan tartary buckwheat. And he said, that's right. So now we have a Vanderbilt group, we have a China group, we've got a farmer in upstate New York, and now I'm in organic farming. So th th this whole makes thing, sense. <laughs> yeah, it makes total sense. So the construct. I wondered how all that dirt got under your fingernails. <laughs> Precisely. So then we get a soil scientist, Emily Reese, who is the soil steward who did her PhD at Cornell. And she's the person who's stewarding the soil of a 500 acre organic farm. And so we, we asked her if she would uh, take on the responsibility of being our soil scientist so that we could see if renourishing the soil with mycorrhiza, if we inoculated the soil to bring back even better health of the soil, if it, if it would send a signal from the mycorrhiza through what they ex exude, which are things like salicylate and other gibberellins, other compounds that influence the root, well, actually the germination of the seeds that become the plant, that then affects the seed of the plant and its phytochemicals. We wait, said, wait, for those non-soil scientists out there listening, what Jeff just is explaining is how the soil is full of mycorrhizal fungi, which is this huge network of fungi underneath the soil that is connecting all the plants to one another, that's helping the plants extract the nutrients from the soil that are living in a symbiotic relationship with, with the plants and the soil. And in order for the plants to get the nutrients they need, they require these fungi to be there. And in depleted soils, which is most of the soils we have because of pesticides, fertilizers, herbicides, glyphosate that destroys the microbiome of the soil, we've destroyed these mycorrhizal networks. So this is a really key part of regenerative agriculture that Jeff's describing. And, and what he did was take uh, basically the buckwheat seed and kind of jack it up with some extra mycorrhizal fungi uh, and some other bacterial compounds that are in, in the soil that help the plant get more phytochemicals. Exactly, exactly right. So this, this to right? me, beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> and you said it beautifully in your book too. I, so the, sometimes the, I have to, I'm, you know, like Obama had his anger translator. I'm, I'm Jeff Bland's like, you know, <laughs> geek translator. <laughs> and, and thank you for that years of help. I, I've needed it. Um, so what happened, 
we had this field trial. We had strips on the on the field that were inoculated with different mycorrhizal inoculants. And then we, at the end of the growing season, obviously we harvested, we took the seeds, we did a phytochemical analysis, and we were very excited uh, to see that one of the plots that we used a certain mycorrhizal inoculant had a what appeared to be a strong trend towards increasing the phytochemicals of these compounds in the plants. So here is kind of closing the circle for me, because now we talk about planetary health, planetary immune system, soil health, root of seed health, plant health, and then food product health, and then human immune health. It actually closes for me I started as a professor in chemistry and environmental science in Earth Year, 1970. Wow. I was hired because it, they wanted an Earth Year chemist in 1970. This <laughs> has closed that he had, cycle. He had an afro back then. For those <laughs> Did listening. I ever? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's an amazing story that connects the dots between how we grow our food, the medicine in the food, and how it impacts us. And so... You know, really, you're talking about the microbiome of the soil and the fungi in the soil that determine the quality of the food we're eating. And we've really stripped that out of most of our agriculture. And what you're saying is that we can actually even help plants a little bit more by some of these new technologies that are allowing us to inoculate the seeds and the plants with these extra kind of probiotics and fungi, which is essentially the microbiome of the soil. and these mycorrhizal fungi network. So it's really kind of mind-blowing and how that determines so much about our health. And that sort of, the subtext of that is, what about all the rest of the food we're eating that doesn't grow in that kind of soil? And what is it lacking? And why are we all so sick? And is it connected to the incredible growth of chronic disease and obesity in this country? You know, it, it's really interesting if, if any of you have ever gone to the Sacramento Valley or Coachella or some of the big uh, produce producing Salinas Valley in California, where they produce a lot of our produce for the whole country, particularly during the winter months. And you, you watch the stewardship of the land. It's all production-based, isn't it? It's all yield-based. And that's not to say that these farmers are irresponsible. They're, they're responsible for making a living <laughs> and to produce a product that can be sold uh, that looks good to the consumer. And so if you then were to take that and compare it to the group of these tartary buckwheat cooperative farmers that we've enlisted to work with us, they have the same goals. They have to make a living. They have to pay for their farms and so forth. But their, their commitment to the stewardship of their soil is extraordinarily motivating and, and symbolizing of what we need in general about regeneration of our lives, of our health, of our sense of vitality, of our resilience. I mean, it's not just growing stuff in the soil. There's a whole metaphor to living about. And I, I recall actually asking, I've never talked to you about this, Mark, but back in, in when I was a young guy and teaching uh, environmental science was one of the courses I taught at the university. It, was, it actually turned out to be a very popular course in the, in the 1970s. And um, I would ask a question the first day of this class, this was, you know, non-scientists would have to would take an elective to get their science credit. So there's a lot of people that were just in there to fill a seat, but I try to make it attractive enough they'd want to come to class. 
So I, the first day of class, I'd ask, how many of you are consider are interested in posterity? Now, remember, these are undergraduate students, 18 to 22 years of age, probably. And, you know, they would look at me like really strange. No, no professor ever asked us about posterity. And I would say, no, I want to know how many of you are interested in posterity? And there would be some people that would raise their hands, yes. And then I would say, okay, why are you interested in posterity? You're not going to be around. Why are you interested? Now, a lot of those students in, that, in those classes, because they were taking science credit with me for the business school, right? So my concept was, what is sustainable business? What is sustainable work? <laughs> uh, what is a sustainable culture? And how do you embody that if you can't keep the principles that keep life alive, the carbon, hydrogen, sulfur, oxygen, and nitrogen cycles healthy, how can you have sustainable anything? And so this, this metaphor that we're dealing with is a powerful way of thinking about biological aging because when we are preventing our own biological aging by implementing what Mark is talking about in his book, we're making a contribution to survival of the planet. That's the only way you get there. You, yeah, have, to swim, you have to swim upstream to be there. Because if you're swimming downstream with what's common and fashionable, you're not. You're an anti-evolutionist. That's yeah. what's going on. You're an anti-evolutionist if you're following the stream. Yeah. You've got to swim upstream. And that's what your book really says so, so, so beautifully. Well, I think, you know, the, the, the company that you started, Big Bold Health, which I, I'm helping with an advisor for, an investor in. Is, is unique because it's, it's taking these, these ancient food products and turning them into medicines that actually work better than most drugs. I mean, quercetin, for example, is, works uh, as a senolytic, killing zombie cells. It also works to activate AMPK, which we know is one of the longevity switches and part of the hallmarks of aging that are in the nutrient sensing pathways. Uh, and yet, it, you know, the effect of just that one molecule may not speak to the power of a more complex diet. So when you think about a longevity diet, you know, what are the foods that you want to make a top priority if we're going to focus on rejuvenating our immune system and reversing the hallmarks of aging and reversing our biological age through food? So what are the top foods we should be thinking about? Okay, well, I'm going to now spout my Hyman because you've taught me how to say this simply. And number one, I'm going to choose low glycemic, minimally processed foods that grew on the earth and looked like they once were alive. That's good. That's, that's going to be <laughs> number one. Number two, I'm going to eat the rainbow. And it's not going to come from synthetic food dyes. Number three, I'm going to remember that things that are not digestible might be very advantageous to my microbiome. So I'm going to eat pre and probiotic rich foods that have an array of non-digestible carbohydrates of different forms and textures. Because different bacteria have different personalities with regard to their diets. How am I doing so far? You're doing good. You're doing good. What I want you to do is, is dive into the rainbow a little bit. Because, you know, we've been focusing on one particular plant, Himalayan tartary buckwheat. But there's a lot of others that hold yeah. a lot of promise and work in the same ways as, as phytohormetic agents to activate our longevity pathways. Yes. So can you speak to some of those? Okay. So... This is an interesting question. I, I haven't heard a lot of people talk about this because a lot of superfoods that are really rich in these hormetic compounds, you can't eat those alone and survive, right? 
you can't live on berries by itself. So there are different kinds of foods. There are those kinds of foods that provide maximum benefit because they provide protein, carbohydrate, fat, and all the vitamins and minerals that you could live off if you were on a survival diet somewhere. By the way, Himalayan tartary buckwheat is one of those, very high in protein, very balanced in amino acids. But then there are others that you would like to include in your diet that you wouldn't consume as your major foodstuff. They would be like you wouldn't live on cruciferous vegetables. Probably. Probably not. But I, I would consider cruciferous vegetables would be a very important part of the cabbage, broccoli, uh, cauliflower, and uh, Brussels sprout family. A uh, very important part of, of a complete diet. I would say that nuts and seeds, because they carry the germ seed of the germinating plant, right? That's like an egg. <laughs> so they've got a lot of good stuff in them. So they're like the plant's eggs. Precisely. So you've got all the neat stuff that's needed to make life. When I think of seeds, when I'm really become an appreciator of these seeds, because when I look at our buckwheat seeds, they look like little uh, armadillos. You, like you could run a Sherman tank over them and it wouldn't crush them. But somehow you give them moisture and life generates out of them and they form this beautiful crop that in the spring is gorgeous to look at. And there's life in those seeds. So seeds contain all the stuff necessary to make life. Mm. Nuts, similarly, as well. Now, you could say, well, is peanut a nut? No, peanut is a legume, so that would not be in that family. Then you would say, well, but then there's some controversial foods that might be included, like soy. And I'm not talking about GMO soy. I'm talking about non-GMO soy. Soy has a whole remarkable portfolio of interesting phytochemicals. And soy's got a pretty bad reputation, I think, because of the whole nature of genetic hybridization and, and all that kind of stuff. But soy in its natural state, and particularly cultured soy, uh, tempeh and, you know, the kind of cultured soy products are still really so, yeah, excellent. Yeah, excellent foods. So I think when I look at the foods on the list, it would be some foods that are central that I could live on that produce good calories with high vitamin and mineral density. And then other foods that provide high hormetic phytochemicals. And it's the balance of those. That's why I see, think eating by the rainbow, because you're going to get a whole different array of carotenoids and flavonoids and polyphenols. So, and so you don't buy the whole argument that these things in plants are anti-nutrients and harmful compounds, and we should be avoiding them and eating only meat. I think that's gibberish. I think that's an absolute gibberish argument. There are, I mean, there's, I mean, there's a number of really interesting, uh, you know, physicians out there that are promoting this and showing all sorts of health benefits and improvement okay. in people's health. And there, I, I, there are plants, certainly plants with solanation alkaloids, like potatoes with green ears. You don't want to eat them, right? They're, they're toxic. But it's knowing what plant to eat at what time in its ripening cycle at what level, that's the knowledge of human species going back thousands of years. That's been studied. And this concept of we're eating, you know, toxicological substances. Yes, if you're eating boatloads of something, you can be killed on water if you over-ingest it. I, I think the key is the, the phytohormesis concept, because I think it really speaks to the way in which phytochemicals work it, it, by triggering our bodies to respond to them with a healing response. That's right. And that, that's something that I only come recently to understand. And I think that that is a very important concept that helps sort of define why we need to be consuming these compounds and why they're so important and how we need also to be careful because what happens if you take a super high dose? It might not be good, right? It's a little stress 
in the right dose to activate your healing response, but not too much. You know, I think I've been around in this field long enough. Maybe I'm cynical. Maybe I'm, you know, um, jaded. But I've seen umpteen multiple moments where we had the answers about nutrition, and it was the topic du jour. And everybody was on that program if they wanted to be in their peer group keeping up. And I could start naming things, but I won't. I won't point fingers. All I can say is now having been in this field 50 years, most of those things came and went. The only things that have stayed are the things that are real. And that's eating a complex diet that's unadulterated, that is rich in plants, that has animal products that are also unadulterated. You know, at one time, I was the scientific head of Coleman Natural Meats, the only company at the time that raised animals naturally that we fought with the USDA to get a natural beef designation. That was 10 years of tireless work to finally get the Cattlemen's Association to kind of allow that designation because they pretty much own the USDA as it relates to what was going on. But the beef that was produced by the Coleman Ranch was a free-range form of animal that didn't go into feedlots, didn't eat, uh, if it ever had to be medicated, it was culled out of the herd and it was a veterinary treated animal. It didn't get into the production. And that's, that's, those are the kind of things that we know are sensible, right? They're, they are, my, my father would call it rule, rules of reasonableness. The way that we've been eating reasonable uh, recently is is really following rules of unreasonableness. That's right. Yeah. So Je Jeff, um, in in the work you're doing now in the in Big Bold Health, which everybody should check out BigBoldHealth.com to learn more about the science and the work you're doing. What are you most excited about that's coming down the pike? What are the, the things that you're you're seeing that are going to be the most impactful and helping us to kind of reimagine our approach to health and aging? I think there are three things happening right now, Mark, and you and I have talked about this that are notes of optimism for me. Um, these are, this is in no necessary order priority, just uh, what I've been seeing. First of all is the rising advocacy of the, the body politic of our country to be disgusted with the way that their health has been treated. And we're starting to see consumer advocacy groups raise up, rise up, particularly now with post-COVID, with long haul where you're starting to see people grouped together and saying this is unacceptable the way that we're being treated and we want to find solutions. And these advocacy groups are composed of very intelligent people that are just disabled because of infection and they are putting their energies into creating a new way of thinking about health, a new way of approaching it. Uh, secondly is the, uh, the meeting that you participated in, the White House conference on hunger, um, uh, food and health which I think uh, was an extraordinary moment. I was at the McGovern Committee hearings back in the 60s. It took 40 years to get the government to have a national conference. And what happened with the M McGovern Committee? How did, it get that, how did that get translated into, into consumer outcome? It got translated into high sugar foods. Dietary guidelines. Yes, the dietary guidelines cut out fat and added sugar. And then we never saw metabolic syndrome until the guidelines were commercialized by the food processing industry. And now we have epidemic proportions of metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance. So this particular round, now what we see is, and I couldn't believe it when it came out as a mandate for future exploration, food is medicine. Now, those of us in this field, uh, Jim Gordon and his group have been talking about this for long periods of time. Food is medicine when it's appropriately applied. 
And this construct that the government will be even thinking about reimbursing people for pres uh, prescriptions for produce. I mean, if that's not yeah. a re revolutionary concept. So that's number two. And number three then is, you know, here I am. I'm, I'm a, I know I'm a techno Greek, but I've, uh, I've got at least two or three wearables that I'm wearing. And these wearables are becoming more and more sophisticated. So we're getting 24-7 information about the intimacy of our body that we never had access to before. We don't need a physician. It goes to the cloud. It gets now processed by AI algorithms that are much more sophisticated than a single mind can ever come up with. And it's feeding back to us real-time information about how to live a life that is going to be consistent with our biological opportunity. Those things, when we put them together, are frame-shifting. They are culturally seismic. They change the whole way that we think about health and disease. And I'm really optimistic because this organization has been advocating this for the 40 years that I've been involved. Yeah. It's very exciting. That's exciting, Jeff. That's really fun. I agree with all of those. I think uh, a little uh, update. I, I think the, the current um, Congress has the potential to pass a medically tailored meals bill uh, to study the effect of food as a treatment for chronic disease. Uh, and it's a $500 million bill. Uh, I'm working with the chairman of the health subcommittee of the Ways and Means Committee to help move this forward. He's in charge of the trillion dollar budget of Medicare. So we're, we're seeing movement. The Rockefeller Foundation is also independently funding a $250 million study on food as medicine. So this is really starting to happen in a place where I remember when you even suggested food as medicine, you'd be ridiculed and laughed out of any medical conversation. But now it's really central to understanding what we're doing. So let me give you one other note to what you just said. And by the way, thank you for your extraordinary advocacy in this area. So we are a little company. Um, yeah, it, that deserves some applause. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our little company, Big Bull Health, went out and wanted to get some venture money to, to guide us. But I was very concerned about because money comes, you know, what is money? Money is potential energy. And potential energy can do good or it can do bad. So it can go either way. So I was looking for strategic investors that really saw the mission that we're trying to develop. And I was very fortunate, or we were very fortunate, we found such an organization. Uh, they have over 60 companies they've invested in, all in sustainable and, and uh, I, I guess it, we would call it new age, food tech and ag tech related to sustainability across oceans and land. And uh, so this company came in and joined us as a partner. At the White House conference, they were instrumental in working together with several other venture capital organizations and are now raising a fund of $2 billion to fund technology and ag development and, and development of technologies that will, in fact, produce sustainable food supplies that are meeting the food as medicine yeah. mandate. So this is coming from the private sector. And where, where there is money, there will be business. Where there is business, there will be jobs. Where there are jobs, there will be smart young women and men coming into the field. And we will transform this from a pathology-focused to a health-focused culture through this kind of it's advocacy. Definitely, it's definitely happening. Thank you, Jeff. Um, and, I, and I'm sure uh, maybe you're aware, but uh, the IRA bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, had $20 billion in it for reforming agriculture and moving it more toward a regenerative agriculture that we were involved in advocating for as part of our food fix campaign. So it's really 
it's really exciting to see these things starting to move forward. And Jeff, uh, I thank you for your tireless work doing a startup at 75 years old. <laughs> uh, you know, usually when you're 25, you do that. <laughs> but I'm very impressed. Yeah, you don't know what you don't need to know. You, what you do at 75, then you recognize how stupid it is. But. Uh -oh. So thank you for your your stewardship of all of us over the decades, for your inspiration, for helping us understand there's a new way to think about health and disease that can relieve suffering for millions of people. And it already has. Uh, I, I bow down to you, Jeff. I thank you for your decades of contribution. And uh, uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Mark, thank you. What you do to change the lives of many for the better, it... Um it's, it's a privilege to have you as a friend and colleague. Thank, Thank you, you so much. And if uh, those of you listening love this podcast, please share with your friends and family everywhere you can. Uh, leave a comment about how food has helped you and affected your health and aging. Uh, and we'll see you next time on The Doctor's Pharmacy. Hey, everybody, it's Dr. Hyman. Thanks for tuning into The Doctor's Pharmacy. I hope you're loving this podcast. It's one of my favorite things to do and introducing you to all the experts that I know and I love and that I've learned so much from. And I want to tell you about something else I'm doing, which is called Mark's Picks. It's my weekly newsletter. And in it, I share my favorite stuff from foods to supplements to gadgets to tools to enhance your health. It's all the cool stuff that I use and that my team uses to optimize and enhance our health. And I'd love you to sign up for the weekly newsletter. I'll only send it to you once a week on Fridays. Nothing else, I promise. And all you have to do is go to drhyman.com forward slash picks to sign up. That's drhyman.com forward slash picks, P-I-C-K-S, and sign up for the newsletter. And I'll share with you my favorite stuff that I use to enhance my health and get healthier and better and live younger longer. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their Find a Practitioner database. It's important that you have someone in your corner who's trained, who's a licensed healthcare practitioner, and can help you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.